morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 25. That's where we'll be this morning, Exodus 25. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the seat back in front of you. You can find this passage on page 65, Exodus 25. We're going to be looking at Exodus 25 and 26 as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, While you're turning there, fun fact for you, Finding Nemo is almost two decades old this year. Pretty astounding, and yet we're still captivated by it, am I right? And it's, it's twin, the movie Taken, which is basically Finding Nemo for grown-ups, is about 12 years old at this point. And uh, those movies are still both awesome, right? Am I right? Can I get an amen? Uh, those movies are both awesome, and, and they still continue to captivate our attention almost two decades after we first saw them in all of their beauty. And the reason that those stories are so captivating to us is because they tell us the same story that all of the universe is telling us. And the place that that story gets most clearly told is in the pages of God's Word. Because all of the universe is swirled up in one massive story of a father who is working to get back with his children. His lost broken, disintegrated, separated children. All of the Bible tells that story about one father working to reunite with his children. And the reason the Bible tells that story from cover to cover is because that's the story that the entire universe and all of our lives are swept up into. And that's what we're going to focus on today. There are some passages in Scripture where this main theme, this main story, comes rising up and is made super abundantly clear to us. And one of those passages is Exodus 25 and 26. And so the main idea that I want you to take away today is that the Holy God will dwell with His people, but sin separates, so God saves. The Holy God will dwell with His people, But sin separates, so God saves. And what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through Exodus 25 and the first part of Exodus 26, and we're going to look at each of those phrases in turn. So first we're going to look at how the holy God will dwell with his people. Then we're going to look at how sin separates us from God, and then we'll close our time today looking at how God saves, how God is at work to bring us back into his dwelling place. And we're going to see this in Exodus 25 and 26. If you've started skimming the passage as we've talked, your eyebrows might be raising a little bit. Some people say that Exodus 25 and 26 are are the chapters where Bible reading plans go to die uh, because we see a long list of numbers and and detailed instructions about God's sanctuary among his people. And often when we come to these passages of Scripture, we're tempted to just kind of skim through them, if not skip over them altogether. And I think that's a mistake because often... The the passages of Scripture that we're most tempted to just kind of rush through are actually the passages that require us to really stick our nose to the grindstone, to really bear fruit out of them, to get good food out of them. And so we're going to take our time today walking through Exodus 25 
and 26. And we're going to see that this is not a boring list of numbers and architectural instructions. This is a fantastic story about how the holy God will dwell with his people. But sin separates, so God saves. Exodus 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark of the, the, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub and on the other end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat... From between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Skip down to chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite to one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together before we dive into it. God, you are a holy God, and your word is beautiful. I pray that we would resist the temptation to gloss over this passage or to allow our minds to wander 
but that you would amaze us at your holiness and your greatness and your grandeur and your love and your redemption and your salvation. God, would you amaze us today at who you are in all of your wonders? Lord, we need you today. Self-esteem won't do it. Self-care won't do it. Pride won't do it. Money won't do it. Sex won't do it. Friends won't do it. But you can do it, God. You can change our lives. You can bring us back to you. You can reorient the universe the way it was meant to be. And I pray, God, that you would do that. I pray that as we behold your beautiful face from your word today, we would be amazed at everything you are and everything that you've done to save sinful people like us. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The holy God will dwell with his people, but sin separates, so God saves. Number one, the holy God will dwell with his people. God loves us and wants us to know him closely, personally, and eternally. Look at, look at where the passage starts in, verse, in chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So the, the people of Israel are asked to rally around, find, find their finest treasure, and bring it to the Lord. This is a contribution for God. Our God is infinitely worthy. And you see there in verses 3 through 7, and then the rest of the passage, we see this astounding picture uh, of gold and acacia wood and scarlet yarns and blue fabric and fine twined linen. The people of Israel are being asked to bring their most excellent treasure to the Lord and they're to use it for his worship. Our God is infinitely worthy. But I need you to know that when God says, take a contribution for me, he's asking for a contribution because he is worthy, not because he is needy. He is worthy, but he is not needy. We've seen this again and again as we've studied the book of Exodus. God does not need our treasure because he's already sitting on a glorious throne. We, we see it in Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They went up the mountain where God was displaying his glory. And what happened? They saw the God of Israel. And there was, just picture this, guys, picture this. There was under his feet, as it were, of pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God already sits on a perfectly glorious throne that mirrors his perfect purity. It has no blemishes and neither does the God who sits on it. God is worthy of our worship, but he is not needy. We even see it in Exodus 24 later on in the chapter when Moses went up on the mountain, verse 15, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the Lord, of the glory of the Lord, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. God's glory is an all-consuming fire that burns up every impure thing around it. 
This is what it means for God to be holy. It means that he is perfectly distinct from everything that he has created because he is the creator and we are not. And it means that he is perfectly distinct from all impurities. No matter how long you look at God, you won't find anything wrong with him, friends. You won't find anything wrong with him because he's holy. And so God asked for an offering because he's worthy, not because he's needy. And in fact, he's not just asking for an offering to meet his own needs. He doesn't have any needs, but to meet the Israelites' needs. So so look at verse 8, chapter 25, verse 8. And let them, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. Words like that are so important when we come to the Bible. And and what we see here is the reason, the purpose behind all of this. Why is God asking for an offering? So that he can accumulate treasure and sit on a big old pile of gold? No, God is asking for an offering for a particular purpose. Let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. The purpose of the offering is for God himself to dwell among his people in the wilderness. And that's good news. The holy God will dwell with his people. And so when God says to the Israelites, I need you to take a contribution for me, that's like a doctor looking at you and saying, I need you to go to the pharmacy and get this medicine and then take it home and put it in your body every day. I need you to do that. That's not going to help the doctor at all. The doctor doesn't need it for his health. He needs it for your health. And that's exactly what God is doing here. He's not meeting his own needs because he doesn't have any needs. He's meeting the Israelites' needs. And that's why God wants to dwell with us. That's why God will dwell with us, because he is our greatest need and our highest treasure. This is the goal of the Bible, and it's the goal of all the universe. A father who is working to dwell with his people. This is where the Bible starts, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The Bible starts in a beautiful garden paradise. Where, where there was plenty of food to eat, there was plenty of beauty to enjoy, there was plenty of flowers to smell. All five of their senses were delighted. But the, the, the climax of their delight in that garden paradise, which was called Eden, was not the food or the fruit or the flowers or the power or the animals, but the God that they dwelled with. Because when God created the world, he dwelled with his people. They walked together in the cool of the day. Doesn't that sound amazing to go for a walk with God and look at all the awesome flowers that he made? Maybe he'll give you a director's commentary about why he made all the awesome things. This is our God and he invites us to dwell with him. That's how the universe was designed to function. Friends, God wants to dwell with his people. He is not distant or aloof. He will never abandon you. 
You know, when we talk about God as father, some people get really hurt by that. Because some of you, unfortunately, have been hurt by fathers and by men who claimed to be fathers. And that's heartbreaking. And God is the opposite of all those bad fathers. Infinite in power and free of abuse. Endless in days, and he will never abandon you. He doesn't get tired of you, friends. He wants to redefine father for you, for those of you that have been hurt by fathers. He wants to dwell with his people forever. That's what you were made for. You were made to know him as your father. You know, one of the greatest theologians that has ever lived, if not the greatest theologian, even one of the greatest philosophers that's ever lived, was a man named Augustine. He lived in the 300s. And Augustine had everything that he ever wanted. He had sex and romance and money, and he stole things. Whatever he wanted was his. And when Augustine reflected back on his life, he said a famous phrase that you may have heard before. He said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This is what you were made for. You were made to know God. And so nothing makes sense until you orient your life around knowing him. Money will never do it. Power and your career and success will never do it because you were made to live for his purposes, not your own. No relationship can ever do it, can ever satisfy you because you were made to know this holy God who wants to dwell with you forever. This is what you were made for. So nothing makes sense until you orient your life around knowing him and treasuring him and making him known. God wants to know you. So prioritize knowing him, friends. Read his word. Run to him in prayer. Gather with God's people because the holy God will dwell with his people. This is what you were made for. So everything is great, right? God dwelling with his people in the wilderness, everything's fantastic. The desert turns into a paradise. The Israelites spend the rest of their days enjoying God, right? Well, that's not the end of the story. There's a problem. The holy God will dwell with his people, but sin separates. A God who is this holy cannot be around a people who are this unholy. Look at uh, chapter 25, verse 10. Because all of the details of the sanctuary are showing this fact, that sin separates us from this holy God. There is a sanctuary, so he wants to dwell with us. He will dwell with us. But all the details of the sanctuary show us that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. So they have the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony that they're making here. And this was a chest that was designed to hold sacred artifacts. 
Throughout the rest of Exodus, we're going to see God command the Israelites to put things in this chest, really important things, like the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And on top of that ark, on top of that chest, is what's called the mercy seat. And we read about that in Exodus 25, 17 to 22. As we read about the mercy seat, I want you to listen for any details that you might know from other places in the Bible. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the other end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So we have this ark, this sacred chest holding sacred things, and on top of it, even more sacred, even more beautiful, is the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is not just kind of like a cool hood ornament for the ark of the testimony. The mercy seat is the throne of God. And so we know it's a throne because this is what thrones looked like back then. First of all, they were made of gold. Angels were a common design element. So when the Israelites were picturing this in their head, as God instructed them to make it, they were like, oh yeah, it's a throne. That's what thrones look like. We also know that it's a throne because throughout the Bible, God is pictured as sitting on a heavenly throne, specifically above angels. And that's what this throne is. It's, there's two cherubim on either side of it, and God's sitting on top of them. We see that all over the Bible, especially in places like Isaiah chapter 6, where there's all of these angels, and they're magnificent and glorious, and they're beating their wings, and they're constantly praising God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're constantly singing his praises, and God is sitting with authority on top of them. And we also know that this is a throne because of verse 25. God sits on this throne, and he speaks with royal authority. Verse 22, Exodus 25, 22, read it one more time. There, from the top of the mercy seat, from my throne, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God is sitting on a glorious heavenly throne. And on either side of the throne are cherubim angels. And now our culture, and many cultures before us even, have completely neutered angels for us so that we think, when we think about angels and we think about words like cherub, we think about these pudgy little babies with wings wearing a harp, playing a harp and wearing a diaper. And that's pretty unimpressive. It's like, oh, well, God's sitting on top of babies. That's, that's not that great. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about angels. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about cherubim. Cherubim are not little babies playing the harp. They're mighty warriors slinging a sword, a sword that's made out of fire. 
Some of you Marines are like, now that's an angel I can get behind. That's the kind of angel I want to I hang out with. And so we see this glorious picture of these warrior guardian angels. And God is sitting on top of them, speaking with royal authority. And those cherubim don't just show us the glory and the greatness of God. They also remind us that sin separates us from this holy God. I mentioned earlier that the Bible's story began in a garden where Adam and Eve dwelled with God and it was perfect and it was wonderful. Everything was great. They had no needs. They had no wants. They had everything. Even and especially God himself as their greatest treasure. They had one rule, one boundary that God had set up for their protection to not eat forbidden fruit. And Adam and Eve neglected that command. They chose their own ways above God's ways. They thought that they knew the path to life. And they ran from God. They ate the forbidden fruit based on the lies of Satan. And as a result, they were separated from God. The holy God will dwell with his people, but sin separates. And listen, when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says, you've sinned, you can't live with me anymore. When God sends them out of the garden, look at what he says to them. In Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim, blocking the people from getting to God, just like on the mercy seat. And so every time Moses or the high priest would approach the mercy seat, any time any of the Israelites would picture the mercy seat, they would be reminded of this. They would be reminded that their first parents and everyone after them, including them and including us, have sinned against this holy God and we cannot be with him. And his guardian warrior angels are standing ready to slay us if we approach him. Now this sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Like, well, they ate some fruit and now they're gone forever. Like that is not a good deal, right? But, but this is the way that things have to be. This holy God doesn't just detest sin, but he actually can't be near sin. Just think about it. God is the king of the world sitting on a heavenly mercy seat throne. You think that rebels can come to the throne of the king and be like, hey man, how you doing? No, of course not. That would be like a traitor terrorist that blew up Wisconsin coming into the Oval Office and be like, hey president, how you doing? Things good today? No, that doesn't make any sense. That would be ridiculous. And that's how ridiculous it is for us to think about dwelling with a holy God in the midst of our sin. We can't dwell with him. And even look at uh, verse 12. We, we jumped over it, but I want to come back to it. In, in verse 12 through 16, God describes poles on the side of the ark. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. 
and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I give you. And so God's people can't approach the ark. They can't even touch it. They've got to carry it with poles. You know, if you go to a museum, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see museum workers wearing white gloves to handle the most precious artifacts because they can't let their oily, grimy, dusty hands near those most precious artifacts. And this is an even more precious artifact. And while God has no risk, if sinful people come near to him, the sinful people do, we cannot dwell with a God who is this holy. The people can't even touch the ark. And we see throughout the story of the Bible, when people do touch the ark, they're dead on the spot. Because unholy sinners cannot be near a God who is this holy. It won't work. The holy God will dwell with his people, but sin separates. And so all of this, all of these details are a constant reminder to Israel of God's greatness, because he sits on a throne. Of God's love, because he dwells in their midst. Uh, of God's holiness, because he sits on a throne that is made out of pure gold. He can't be touched. And it's a reminder of their own unholiness. And that's still true today. We are separated from God because of sin. Your sin is your most serious problem. It is not your self-esteem. It is not your self-actualization. It is not your, self, your self-care. Your most serious problem is your sin. We are cursed. And yet, we are completely unable to deal with it. We need God to save us. And hallelujah, that's what he does. The holy God will dwell with his people. Sin separates but God saves. But God saves. In the rest of chapter 25, we hear uh, more details for the sanctuary. There's a lampstand that burns night and day because fire throughout the book of Exodus has been a picture of God's presence. There was fire in the burning bush. There was fire on the mountain. In the wilderness, there was fire going before the Israelites. Fire is always a picture of God's presence. And there's a table with bread that also is a picture of God's presence because God gives life just like food does. And then as we get into chapter 26, we see some more elements of this sanctuary, specifically curtains and veils. Chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. That sounds familiar. Cherubim keeping the people out. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. And from the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. 
Likewise, you shall make loops of blue loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. And so surrounding the tabernacle, and tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. God's dwelling in a tent, and he's in the tent because Israel's on the move. They're not yet in the promised land where they will permanently dwell. So, so they need to have a portable dwelling place for God. So it's a tent or tabernacle. And the tabernacle is surrounded with curtains. And not just wimpy curtains. Like in my house, I have these sheer curtains that don't block out anything. And it's not wimpy curtains. These are big old curtains. They're thick curtains. You can't see anything through them. They're pretty intimidating. And they're woven with cherubim. Once again, that's the guardian slinging a sword around, telling, telling the sinful people that they can't get near this holy God. And they're thick, and they're doubled over, and it's just a constant reminder again that the, whole, the unholy people cannot be near a holy God. And the layout of it that we see in the rest of chapter 26 is that when the tent is fully set up, there's a couple different there's a courtyard outside of it where anyone can see and look in and see what the priest is doing. The other priest would do some washings and things like that. And then when you step into the tabernacle, the first room is called the holy place. And there's a veil at the back of the holy place. And you step through that veil and you're in the most holy place. Or the holy of holies. And that's where the ark would sit. That's where the mercy seat was. That's where God sat on a throne. And no one was allowed into the holy place except for the priests. And no one was allowed into the most holy place except one priest once a year. So the curtains and the veil are this reminder that the unholy God cannot dwell with the holy people. And when the Israelites did land in the promised land, eventually they built a massive temple in Jerusalem. And that's just an expansion of this. It's this magnificent building. And there was a courtyard. And you stepped past the courtyard into the holy place where only the priests could go. And you stepped past the holy place behind a veil, a massive veil, 60 feet high, woven with cherubim, You've seen that before. But behind that veil was the most holy place where God dwelt personally, sitting on top of the mercy seat. And so the temple is just an expansion of this with this massive 60-foot veil with cherubim reminding Israel, you can't come in. So more separation. But that's not the end of the story. The Bible story starts in a garden. And the Bible story continues. We follow the people of Israel through the wilderness, in slavery, in Egypt, out of slavery, through the wilderness, 
into the promised land, out of the promised land in exile, back into the promised land by redemption. And in that promised land, there came a man whose name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ went to the temple where the keep out curtain hung. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that Adam and Eve hadn't lived, that I haven't lived, that you haven't lived, because he was God himself. And so there was no sin that was separating him from God. If he wanted to, he could have walked right through that veil, past the cherubim. They would have stopped slinging their swords because he was the king and he was there. And Jesus Christ, in the same city where that massive 60-foot veil hung, Jesus Christ died on a cross, suffering the punishment that my sins have earned, that your sins have earned. And a very, very interesting thing happened when Christ died on the cross. Luke chapter 23 describes it. It was now about the sixth hour, and there, were, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Christ is on the cross. The world seems to be mourning. Everything in the created order is shouting out, this isn't right. The king is not supposed to die. He's supposed to reign. And so the sun's light fails, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus Christ died to pay the price for your sin. And then Almighty God ripped up the veil that keeps the unholy people away from the holy God because now there was a way for God's people to step past the cherubim into the most holy place. The holy God will dwell with his people. But sin separates, so God saves. And he saves his dirty, sinful people by washing them clean in the blood of Christ Jesus. He tore up the curtain because it wasn't needed anymore. Sin really does separate us from God, but Jesus Christ really did pay it all so that we can be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is a massively important word. It means that we used to be enemies, and now we're friends. Now we're family. And that's what God's done in our lives. We used to be his enemies in our sin. We couldn't dwell with him. But the holy God will dwell with his people. Sin does separate, but God does gloriously save. He reconciles a people to himself. This is better than a presidential pardon where you're let out of jail. You aren't just let out of jail. You're invited into the Oval Office. You're invited to know the king, to dwell with the king. You're not just let out. You're invited in. 
Salvation doesn't put you at square one so that you can work your way around the board. Salvation brings you all the way around the board back home to our great God. Because friends, the Jesus Christ that died for your sins didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And everyone throughout history that has ever believed in him has been raised up with him. So if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, you will never die. This is your story for the rest of eternity that the holy God will dwell with his people. And sin separated us, but God saves. You really were his enemy, but he really does love you. Sin is not ignored, it's paid for. And so the reward is not just to get out of hell. The reward is God himself. He is our treasure. Just think about this infinitely holy, pure, wonderful God that sits on a throne. We get to know him and know him more forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And this is not just a side project for God. It's not like God's saying like, oh, maybe I'll save some people today. No, this is God's passion. This is his heartbeat. God will dwell with his people. Think about how driven Marlon is in Finding Nemo or how driven Liam Neeson is in Taken. They're going to do whatever it takes to get their children back. And that's what God does. He's going to do whatever it takes to get his children back because he loves us. He really does love you. So don't live estranged from God. The pleasures of sin never satisfy you. Come to him right now through his son, Jesus Christ. Come into the most holy place and know this God. Stepping into the most holy place means leaving your sin behind. It doesn't mean that you'll be perfect as soon as you become a Christian. I know that that's not true just from my own life. But it does mean that, that sin isn't our king anymore. We aren't our own king anymore because Christ is our king. And with his help, we strive to follow him. We run after him because we know that that's what we're made for. And we'll never be satisfied in this life until we live to know Christ and make him known. People all around the world are separated from God because of sin. God's mission is to reconcile people to himself. And that's the mission of our church. Our mission is to glorify God by helping people know Jesus and make him known in D.C. and around the world. Because we believe that's the only thing worth living for. And so do you know Christ? Have you been reconciled to Christ yet? Have you been forgiven do you have confidence that if you, were, if you were to die tonight, you would dwell with him forever? Not because you're good enough, but because Christ is. Do you have that confidence? If you don't have that confidence, if you're not sure today, if I died today, I don't know where I would go. I'm probably not good enough to get in. I don't know if I've trusted in Christ. If you're not sure, or if you are sure that you're, you wouldn't be right with God, you haven't yet been reconciled to him, please come talk to us before you leave today. Talk to the, the person who brought you or a Christian friend sitting around you. Come find me after the service. We would love to talk more with you about that because our mission is to help people know Jesus and our mission is also to help people make him known. 
in D.C. and around the world. You were made to know God, so your life will not make any sense until that's what you live for. To know him and make him known in D.C. and around the world. So I want to encourage you, lay down your life, leave your sin at the door, step into the most holy place, because the holy God will dwell with his people. But sin separates, so God saves. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you that your word works with power. We thank you for glorious passages like this list of measurements and building instructions. God, I pray that we have beheld wondrous things from your word, and I pray that you would cause them to, to burn up our hearts, to cause us to love you more and more and more. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would come to know you. God, if there's any Christians here that are living estranged from you, content with sin and the pleasures of this world, I pray that you would cause us to see how foolish it is to live for anything else but to know you and make you known. God, please, would you build up your church? Would you sanctify your people? Would you call sinners home? And would you make us homesick for the day, like we read about earlier from Revelation 21, where you will dwell with your people, where sin will be a distant memory, and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God, make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, come. God, we thank you so much for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives. It's for your name we pray. Amen.